When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, before we get into today's episode, I just wanna let you know that I have launched a Patreon officially. I have four super cool tiers, including my top tier, which is Casper's Pack. Anyone who signs up through the month of November is going to be eligible to receive a Christmas card from myself and Casper. They're both handwritten, and I have a special doggy ink that he will stamp to sign his paw to every single one of those letters. All the tiers come with really cool perks, private communities, extra episodes, paw prints from Casper, you name it. So make sure you check out my Patreon. Link is in the description box. I'm sure everyone watching this has heard of Facebook or more recently, because I feel like I just can't even keep up with them at this point, meta as they want to call themselves. But for the sake of today, it's Facebook. And I'm sure as we're all aware, they kind of have a bad habit of perhaps taking your personal data. But it's so much deeper than that. Not only has Facebook began using people's personal data against them almost since its inception, but Facebook has even been utilized as a tool to incite genocide. So forget what you think you knew about Facebook because it's getting a whole lot worse. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Corporate Casket, where bad businesses go to die. Today, we're going to be talking about Facebook and it's become known as the father of modern social media. And though it might be infamous for selling data, there's a lot more to Facebook than just being the place where your distant relatives post questionable memes. Though Facebook does own Instagram and it has since 2012, today I'm focusing on the actual Facebook side of things. We will get into Instagram in a future episode because this one is already going to be a two-part episode. So let's just begin and dive right into it and see what Facebook is really about. So we're gonna start with the company history. Facebook's history begins with Mark Zuckerberg and a company known as FaceMash. The Harvard Crimson describes it as being a popular Harvard version of the Am I Hot or Not website. Their November 2003 article states, the site was created entirely by Zuckerberg over the last week in October after a friend gave him the idea. The website used photos compiled from the online Facebooks of nine houses, placing two next to each other at a time and asking users to choose the hotter person. In just the first day, the site had 450 visitors and 22,000 photo reviews. Harvard, not at all thrilled with Mark's new website, yanked his internet connection. He initially faced expulsion for this as he had violated individual privacy, but ultimately Mark was allowed to stay at the Ivy League school, even if he was on thin ice. Mark didn't seem to regret this decision though, and he thought the information should be available despite having privately apologized to his fellow students, according to Fast Company. Ultimately, Zuckerberg did an end run around the administration. He set up the Facebook template and let students fill in their own information. The new project consumed so much of his time that by the end of the first semester, with just two days to go before his art history final, he was in a serious jam. He needed to be able to discuss 500 images from the Augustan period. This isn't the kind of thing where you can just go in and figure out how to do it, like calculus or math, he says, without a trace of irony. You actually have to learn these things ahead of time. So he pulled a Tom Sawyer. He built a website with one image per page and a place for comments. Then he emailed members of his class and invited them to share their notes, like a study group on cyber steroids. 
Within two hours, all the images were populated with notes, he says. I did very well in that class. We all did. And Mark seemingly found his calling. In early 2004, the Facebook, later renamed to Facebook, was launched. Within two weeks, half the student body had signed on. Before long, it was two thirds, and soon students from other colleges approached him asking for online Facebooks of their own. How big do you think your product or your service is? Well, it's impossible to tell. When we first launched, we were hoping for, you know, maybe 400, 500 people. Harvard didn't have a Facebook, so that's the gap that we were trying to fill. And now we're at 100,000 people, so who knows where we're going next. Um, We're hoping to have many more universities by... Mark and his roommates, Moskowitz and Hughes, helped add features that ran the site using a shared hosting service. The three of them dedicated portions of the Facebook for Stanford, Yale, and by May, dozens of schools were included. Yet, despite these swiftly growing early years, not everyone was rooting for Mark. Just a few days after the site was launched, three Harvard seniors stepped forward, accusing Mark of intentionally misleading them into believing he could help them build a social media site called Harvard Connection, while he instead was using their ideas to build a competing product. These three students were twins Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, as well as Divya Narenda. Although the three later did build Harvard Connection, later known as ConnectU, this obviously never had the success that Facebook did. Crimson, the school's newsletter, originally planned to run a story on this, calling Mark out for his theft. However, Mark himself went to the office and Business Insider explains. On a Crimson computer, Mark brought up what he described as the work he did on Harvard Connection. He gave Tim and Elizabeth a guided tour of the site. Mark's goal seemed to have been to show Tim and Elizabeth, the Crimson reporter and editor, that other than the ways in which social networks are all the same, there was no features or designs in the work that he did on harvardconnection.com that ended up on thefacebook.com. Mark's demonstration was successful. After he left, the Crimson decided not to run the story. Yet the twins especially refused to let up. One of their friends and fellow Harvard rowers, John Thompson, claimed that Mark stole one specific idea featured on the Facebook website called Visualize Your Buddy. Mark was upset because he'd been promised there would be no story. And as John himself would later confirm with the Crimson, he'd simply made up the story to impress the Winklevoss twins. Tim and Elizabeth dropped these false claims from the story, but went ahead and published a story on the ConnectU's claims instead. Just before the story was published, Mark was curious and seemingly desperate to know if John's false claims would be part of their article. And so he did what any seemingly normal college student would do, and he hacked into the email accounts of the Crimson editors. He went about this by seeing if any of the editors were members of Facebook. And for those that were, he examined a log of failed logins to see if any of these Crimson members had entered an incorrect password into Facebook. He then used these passwords to access their Harvard email accounts, successfully logging into two of them this way. Remember how I said at the beginning that Facebook is notorious for stealing or selling your information? Well, apparently Mark himself was doing this all the way back in the early 2000s when he used private login data to see what Harvard Crimson editors were saying about him because he was too impatient to wait until the morning. And that is some serious foreshadowing and a massive yikes on trikes from me. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that people can't make mistakes, but this is pretty worrying for a company to start on this kind of basis. Of course, the twins themselves haven't exactly been seen as innocent in all of this either. Even their Harvard president quite blatantly called them assholes, and generally speaking, they seem typecast as the villains against a revolutionary Mark Zuckerberg. The tides have turned in recent years, and considering that they've become literal billionaires through Bitcoin, I hardly think these two care what any of us think of them. For whatever it's worth, they, as well as Narendra, received many millions of dollars in their lawsuit, which was settled in 2008. Clearly, there was enough evidence to point to Mark having stolen something from his former classmates. 
Despite the questionable beginnings, Facebook did take off and soon it wasn't just for colleges anymore. When college sophomore Marisol Romero isn't in class checking on her assignments, she's online checking out her classmates. You see someone that you might recognize, you click on them and then you see that they're friends with someone else and four hours later and you have no idea how you got there. On college campuses, it's- In about a year, Facebook attracted 2.8 million users on more than 800 campuses. Acel Partners invested $13 million in the startup and Peter Thiel, a venture capitalist and founder of PayPal, also invested half a million dollars. Sean Parker, the founder of Napster, became president of the company as well. And it's a bit strange to read about the 2004 to 2005 early years because in these articles, Facebook still seemed very focused on saturating the college market and being a tool for students to communicate and reconnect as alumni. At that point in time, you even needed a .edu email to register for free. However, the shift towards opening up to the public didn't take very long. And in September, 2006, Facebook announced that it was a place for anyone to connect with their friends in a trusted environment. They emphasized that they had industry-leading privacy controls that they were continually adding onto, such as the ability to block other users in specific networks to keep users from searching someone's name and controlling whether or not their profile picture would show up in search results. Yet not everyone was thrilled by their changes. The new option, Newsfeed, almost became Facebook's undoing. Users felt their personal information was being broadcasted, even if they posted it all publicly themselves. A group called Students Against Facebook Newsfeed was born, and in less than 48 hours, over 700,000 people joined. From his New York hotel, Zuckerberg posted an open letter to users via the blog on the site. We really messed this one up, he wrote. When we launched Newsfeed and Minifeed, we were trying to provide you with a stream of information about your social world. Instead, we did a bad job of explaining what the new features were and an even worse job of giving you control of them. His engineers worked around the clock for three days to add better privacy features. And the storm passed. Facebook weathered its first massive public controversy about their privacy features and seemed to move on pretty quickly. Brands and celebrities began trying to connect with their customer and fan bases using Facebook, prompting the rollout of Facebook pages a few years later. In the meantime, Microsoft got a piece of the Facebook pie when they took a $240 million stake in the company. According to CNN Money on their November 24th, 2007 article, Microsoft Corporation announced Wednesday that it is investing $240 million for a minority 1.6% stake in Facebook, a price that values the social networking site at $15 billion. Under the terms of the agreement, Microsoft will be the exclusive advertising platform for Facebook. Microsoft already had an agreement to sell ads in the United States and as part of the new deal will also sell ads internationally. Last year, Facebook rejected a $1 billion takeover offer from Yahoo Incorporated, charts Fortune 500. Microsoft's money should be more than enough to pay for Facebook's ambitious expansion plans until the privately held company goes public. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, age 23, has indicated he would like to hold off on an initial public offering for at least two more years. In the meantime, Facebook hopes to become an advertising magnet by substantially increasing its current audience of nearly 50 million active users. And I really feel like just a minute ago, we said they had 2 million users. Seriously, Facebook was growing at an unprecedented rate. They opened up the Facebook developer platform, allowing software engineers to create applications that interact with core Facebook features. They soon hit 500 million users, achieved positive cash flow, and by 2011 became the world's second most visited website right behind Google. 
However, just as the company grew, the criticisms began to stack up against them. Their electricity usage, tax avoidance, real name user requirement policies, censorship, their facial recognition software, their excessive retention of user information, their addictive quality. All of this was thrown into question time and time again. Although it would be impossible for me to cover every single thing this company has done ever, I want to focus on some of their more massive controversies, how Facebook reacted to them and where that leaves the social media site today. Rather than follow a specific timeline, we're going to go by sections so you can see how each issue has evolved over time. And before we jump into these sections, we're going to take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. We all like to save money when we shop online, but sometimes it's tough to scour the depths of the internet to find these said promo codes. And that's why you need Honey, the shopping tool that finds the best promo codes for you and automatically applies the best ones at your cart at checkout. Recently, I was purchasing some new business cards through Vistaprint and lo and behold, uh, Honey works there too. So that was kind of nice. I saved myself a sick 20%, which was pretty nice if I do say so myself. Honey supports over 300,000 stores online. And the best part is, is once you install the Honey extension onto your browser, you don't really even have to do anything. It does all the work for you. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on the free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you're doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. And I'd never recommend something that I don't actually use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com casket. That's joinhoney.com casket. Long ago in the very stylish, very glam 1970s, Adam and Eve was born. And no, I'm obviously not talking about biblical Adam and Eve. I'm talking about the online adult boutique store, Adam and Eve. They've got lingerie, games, movies, toys, and more, whether for solo or one or more. Plus Adam and Eve offers 24 seven customer service and 90 day no hassle returns. So if anything goes wrong with your order, just let them know and they will get it taken care of. Plus the holiday season is a great time to get you something, a little treat for yourself or perhaps a treat for you and your partner. Adam and Eve turned 50 this year and to celebrate the first half century of sex positivity, they're giving out all the deals, including this one. So if you wanna try something out, explore something new or see what Adam and Eve might have to offer you, make sure you go to adamandeve.com and use code casket. When you use code casket, you'll get 50% off one item and free shipping to the US and Canada. Some exclusions do apply. Although Facebook's issue with privacy has become incredibly well-known and publicized in recent years, one could argue that it's always been a problem. Roger McNamee, a longtime tech investor and former advisor to Zuckerberg explained that when the internet bubble burst in 2000, young entrepreneurs with a different value system began creating startups. They left behind the hippie libertarianism of Steve Jobs for an aggressive version that was more in line with Ayn Rand. Mr. Thiel, the PayPal co-founder who first made the outside investment into Facebook, even wrote an essay titled, Competition is for Losers. In other words, as his subtitle stated, if you want to create and capture lasting value, then look to build a monopoly. And build a monopoly they did all right. Facebook may have started with relatively strong privacy controls, but it simply did not last. Instead, Zuckerberg took a page out of Google and Thiel's book and began adopting an incredibly aggressive mindset. The New York Times explains. 
As described by the Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, sometime in 2002, engineers at Google discovered that user data generated by searches could also be used to predict behavior beyond what purchases a visitor to the site intended to make. They realized that much more data would lead to much better behavioral predictions. They embraced surveillance and invented a market for behavioral predictions. They created Gmail, an email product that connected identity to purchase intent, but also shredded traditional notions of privacy. Machine reading of Gmail messages enabled Google to gather valuable insights about users' current and future behavior. Data for third parties like banks, credit card processors, cellular carriers, online apps, along with data from web tracking from surveillance products like Google Assistant, all of it became a part of user profiles. Zuckerberg adopted Google's monetization strategy, which required systematic privacy invasions to exist. In 2014, Facebook followed Google's lead again and incorporated data from users' browning history and other sources to make its behavioral predictions more accurate and valuable. Even more alarmingly, Roger writes, platforms are under no obligation to protect user privacy. They are free to directly monetize the information they gather by selling it to the highest bidder. For example, the platform that tracks user mouse movements over time could be the first to notice symptoms of a neurological disorder like Parkinson's disease. And this information could be sold to an insurance company. And that company might then raise rates or deny coverage to a customer before he is even aware of his symptoms. NBC also has a comprehensive timeline of Facebook's privacy issues in one of their articles, as well as Facebook's response to each one. They mentioned how Newsfeed was launched in 2006, but also note that in 2007, Zuckerberg created a program called Beacon, which would allow companies to track purchases by Facebook users and then notify their friends of what had been bought, oftentimes without the Facebook user's consent. Zuckerberg issues a pretty lackluster apology for this and announced that users would be given the option to opt out, which begs the question, why not offer users the option to opt in instead? This is just a personal opinion, but I don't know anyone that would be comfortable giving this much personal information to Facebook. And I'm sure many of the people that were signed up for Beacon may not have ever been aware of it. I'd have far more respect for Facebook and companies like it if they assumed you didn't want to be part of these privacy invading programs and changes and allowed users the option of sharing their shopping habits rather than vice versa. Anyway, as of November, 2011, Facebook agreed to undergo an independent privacy evaluation every other year for the next 20 years due to charges settled with the FTC. Regulators said that Facebook falsely claimed that third-party apps were able to access only the data they needed to operate when in fact, these apps could access nearly all of a user's personal data. Facebook was also charged with sharing user information with advertisers despite a promise that they wouldn't. Just two years later in 2013, a bug exposed the email addresses and phone number of 6 million Facebook users that had been inadvertently stored. And one year later in 2014, a Facebook data scientist named Adam D.I. Kramer conducted a mood manipulation experiment on half a million users without permission. Apparently, Facebook altered their newsfeed to show more positive or negative posts to study how emotions could spread on social media. It's extremely messed up to manipulate people in this way, and the scientist posted an apology after the backlash rolled in. Years later, the experiment doesn't seem to be available online, though I can certainly see where Mark Zuckerberg, Big Brother comparisons come in after this one. There's also been lawsuits throughout the years over how Facebook handles privacy breaches, such as one class action lawsuit that followed a Swiss security firm's report which suggests that Facebook scans the links sent in private messages. The firm High Tech Bridge also referenced stories in the media relating to Facebook's third-party plugins for counting likes shared through private messages. Representing to users that the content of Facebook messages is private creates an especially profitable opportunity for Facebook. 
because users who believe they are communicating on a service free from surveillance are likely to reveal facts about themselves they would not reveal had they known the content was being monitored. Somehow, this is still only the tip of the privacy issue iceberg. We're going to dive even deeper into Facebook's privacy issues now and take a look at what happened when Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress and the multi-billion dollar fine that ensued. Many Facebook users were paid to take a personality test funded by Cambridge Analytica, agreeing to give up some personal data. But what they didn't know at the same time, the company was scooping up all of their friends' private information too. So a survey that started with about 270,000 people. In 2018, Cambridge Analytica was a huge story you could not escape. I feel like these days I most often hear about Facebook when it's discussing misinformation, but both that as well as privacy concerns have probably been the two largest and most public controversies I've seen. This massive scandal began in 2010 when Facebook launched Open Graph. This platform allowed external developers to reach out to Facebook users and request permission to access their data, crucially to access their friends' personal data too. And this could be anything from a user's nickname, gender, location, birthday, education, political preference, relationship status, religious view, and even to see their online chat status. And if this sounds shady and concerning to you, good, because it should. A few years later in 2013, Cambridge academic Alexander Kogan and his company Global Science Research created an app called This Is Your Digital Life. The app prompted users to answer questions for a psychological profile and about 300,000 users were thought to have taken it. The app gathered data from their Facebook friends as well, which resulted in Kogan having access to millions of profiles, according to CNBC. In 2014, Facebook adapted its rules to limit a developer's access to user data. This change was made to ensure a third party was not able to access a user's friend's data without gaining permission first. However, the rule changes were not retroactively imposed and Kogan did not delete the data thought to have been improperly acquired. In late 2015, The Guardian reported that Cambridge Analytica was helping Ted Cruz's presidential campaign. The report suggested the Republican candidate was using psychological data based on research spanning tens of millions of Facebook users in an attempt to gain an advantage over his political rivals, including Donald Trump. In response, Facebook legally pressured Kogan and Cambridge Analytica to delete the data. Both Kogan as well as the London-based elections consultancy firm claimed they did, and obviously that's not what happened. Trump's campaign team began investing heavily in Facebook ads in 2016, and during an undercover sting operation, the company's managing director, Mark Turnbull, told Britain's Channel 4 News that they were responsible for the Defeat Crooked Hillary video campaign on Facebook. Seattle's pledge to defund its police department by 50%, even including a proposal to remove 911 dispatchers from police control. Joe Biden said he's absolutely on board with defunding the police. By 2018, news sources such as the New York Times ran exposés on the story. Christopher Wiley, who helped found Cambridge Analytica, blew the whistle on them and said of its leaders, rules don't matter for them. They want to fight a culture war in America. Robert Mercer, hedge fund billionaire, may have owned Cambridge Analytica, but it was headed by Trump's advisor, Stephen Bannon. Tens of millions of users had their information collected and exploited. This was no data breach. It was intentional and upsetting. Many began deleting their Facebook profiles because of this, and Mark Zuckerberg himself had to testify before Congress. Facebook was made to pay over $600,000 for their part in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, but this wasn't all. After the scandal broke, the FTC began investigating Facebook to see if Facebook violated their earlier agreements that they would only share user data if they had explicit consent. 
As it turned out, the FTC had a lot of questions and problems with Facebook and not just around the Cambridge Analytica scandal. In 2019, Facebook was fined a historic amount, $5 billion. The FTC's own website reads, the $5 billion penalty against Facebook is the largest ever imposed on any company for violating consumers' privacy and almost 20 times greater than the largest privacy or data breach penalty ever imposed worldwide. It is one of the largest penalties ever assessed by the US government for any violation, despite repeated promises to its billions of users worldwide that they could control how their personal information is shared. Facebook undermined consumers' choices, said FTC Chairman Joe Simons. The magnitude of the $5 billion penalty and sweeping conduct relief are unprecedented in the history of the FTC. The relief is designed not only to punish future violations, but more importantly, to change Facebook's entire privacy culture to decrease the likelihood of continued violations. The commission takes consumer privacy seriously and will enforce FTC orders to the fullest extent of the law. Of course, there is far more to Cambridge Analytica than just their involvement with Facebook and these privacy issues. I highly recommend the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, if you wanna see a little bit more. I did watch it while I was researching this portion and I think it does a fantastic job of breaking this down. I could honestly talk about this scandal for ages and how it relates to Brexit, but I really want to focus on just the Facebook side of things. Basically people as personalities, as consumers, and arguably most important as voters were being tracked. Status updates, likes, personal messages, all of it was used. Those in swing states were targeted, especially people that may be persuaded. It was both a grossly unethical experiment as the psychology of millions and millions of people were played with without their consent, all in the context of a democratic process. Cambridge Analytica was, as Chris Wiley described it, a propaganda machine. We may not want to admit that propaganda works, but it does or else it wouldn't exist. And as Wiley explains, it doesn't matter if someone would have won anyway or exactly how much data was stolen, what matters is that cheating occurred and we shouldn't allow cheating in our democratic system. What makes this all the more upsetting is Facebook was, and still is to some extent, a monopoly. Although Twitter may be similar, Facebook has illegally maintained its personal social networking monopoly by buying up rivals. WhatsApp and Instagram are two of the most well-known acquisitions. As of writing this, the investigation still seems to be underway. And as of December, 2020, the FTC wrote, The complaint also alleges that Facebook over many years has imposed anti-competitive conditions on third-party software developers access to valuable interconnections to its platform, such as the application programming interfaces, APIs, that allow developers apps to interface with Facebook. In particular, Facebook allegedly has made key APIs available to third-party applications only on the condition that they refrain from developing competing functionalities and from connecting with or promoting other social networking services. The complaint alleges that Facebook has enforced these policies by cutting off API access to blunt perceived competitive threats from rival personal social networking services, mobile messaging apps, and other apps with social functionalities. For example, in 2013, Twitter launched the app Vine, which allowed users to shoot and share short video segments. In response, according to the complaint, Facebook shut down the API that would have allowed Vine to access friends via Facebook. So to reiterate, Facebook, a monopoly, has continually failed to protect their users, allowing tens of millions of people's data to be stolen or effectively just kind of given away. It's pretty disturbing when you hear all of this really, and when they refer to this level of influence and data as illegal and psychological warfare. Again, it's no wonder I've seen articles refer to Facebook as helping realize an Orwellian dystopia. Even though I'd like to believe it's simply hyperbole, it sure feels like we're living in a more subtle version of that at times. As part of the fallout to all of this, Facebook cut ties with several of their large data brokers who helped advertisers target people on the social network. 
data is one of the most valuable assets in the world, and Facebook is known for having loads of it and exploiting it. The reputation has absolutely been eroded because of this, but are they just too big to stop? I can't really say for sure. It seems like there was a time to stop them, but it's been long past. However, now that we've discussed the absolute lack of privacy Facebook users have, let's talk about those messages that they're spreading. You announced recently that the official policy of Facebook now allows politicians to pay to spread disinformation. So I just wanna know how far I can push this um, in the next year. Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad. And I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being, uh, from it, from, for in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Uh, in, I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual in, yes, disinformation. In a democracy, okay. I believe that- I feel like we've all heard that Facebook and politics go together like oil and water and how the spread of misinformation is horrible there. But why is that? What makes it that it is so horrible on Facebook's platform specifically? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is how misinformation can become like a feedback loop. If you're already expressing some interest about a specific topic, Facebook may recommend you to join a group about it. And once you've joined that group, it'll recommend you another one that's similar and so on and so forth. Nina Jankowicz on NPR explained, after the 2016 election, Facebook really wanted to make the platform a little bit more like your digital living room and not the digital public square. It surfaced more content from friends and family and groups were a big part of that strategy. Rather than seeing content from pages, which, you know, media outlets, brands, celebrities have, it was surfacing more of that friends and family content. It's a real problem though. Basically, these are spaces that aren't, they don't have the same amount of oversight as other spaces. They are moderated by group moderators and Facebook doesn't look at them, but they also can be private and secret, which means that bad actors can target people who are going to be the most vulnerable. Some sources claim that this echo chamber mentality is what won Trump the presidency in the first place and what allowed him to continue to make false claims on social media throughout his term. Facebook has been criticized as an incubator for fake news. And while some of the conspiracy theories may seem harmless, others are incredibly dangerous. One of these theories claim that ISIS was actually created by the US as part of a plot by Hillary Clinton to replace the region's autocratic rulers with more pliant Islamist leaders. The supposed evidence for this theory are some passages from Clinton's most recent memoir, Hard Choices, and yet none of these quotes actually appeared in her book, but they were actually just fabricated and then posted to Facebook. Despite this, the fictional plot was reported as fact by Egyptian, Tunisian, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Lebanese news organizations. Whether or not you like Hillary Clinton, the way that Facebook had spread fake news about her is ridiculous. Everyone shows that without a doubt, Facebook is worse than Google, Twitter, Yahoo, Gmail, and just AOL, anything literally when it comes to spreading fake news, like even AOL and Yahoo have you beat, like that's pretty bad. Now, I know that's the term we're all gonna get sick of hearing by now, fake news, but both fake news and misinformation have been a massive problem for the website. Though it became incredibly apparent in the 2016 presidential election, it's an issue that persists to this day. A team of researchers led by Andrew Guess of Princeton University tracked the internet use of 3000 Americans in the lead up to the 2016 election. Facebook was the referrer site for untrustworthy news sources over 15% of the time. And by contrast, they only referred users to authoritative news sites 6% of the time. The researchers found that Trump supporters were far more likely to visit untrustworthy news sites. Approximately 57% of Trump supporters read at least one fake news article in the month prior to the 2016 election compared to only 28% of Clinton supporters. Older Americans were also more likely to visit untrustworthy news websites. 
Perhaps most alarming is the observed sickliness of fake news websites. The researchers estimate that people spend an average of 64 seconds consuming a fake news article compared to only 42 seconds on verified news stories. Facebook was and still is a key vector of distribution for untrustworthy websites, but how and why? There's the incubator mentality, yes, but this answer is incredibly multifaceted. It's simply not because, oh, that InfoWars article that your uncle shared went viral. There's other behind the scenes reasons as to why Facebook is such a misinformation machine. According to the New Yorker, another one of the reasons is that Facebook doesn't fact check statements made by politicians or political advertisements. When Zuckerberg testified before Congress, he said that their policy is that they do not fact check politician speech because we believe that in a democracy, it's important that people can see for themselves what politicians are saying. And to some extent, I can agree with that. Yet I also agree with the New Yorker when they state that Zuckerberg has essentially built the world's biggest microphone and then rented it to liars, authoritarians, professional propagandists, and anyone that can afford to pay the market rate for profit. That's not free speech, it's paid speech. Facebook has absolutely profited from renting this massive microphone out too. Even if in the past year, they've promised to crack down on the spread of misinformation and have gone so far as to ban Trump for at least two years, people aren't exactly too confident in Facebook or in Zuckerberg to keep those promises. After all, some of the information that spread is not only blatantly false, but incredibly harmful and damaging. For example, just over three years ago, Zuckerberg stated that Holocaust denial posts shouldn't automatically be taken down for getting it wrong. Eventually in 2020, Zuckerberg retracted that and stated, my own thinking has evolved as I've seen data showing an increase in anti-Semitic violence as we have our wider policies on hate speech. Still, it's worth knowing that Facebook took years to make this move to begin with, and it's embarrassing. Free speech, after all, doesn't mean condoning hate. You can absolutely say whatever you want, but if you're going to use your free speech to spread Holocaust denial, then a private company can and should make it clear that they don't support you and put you in the bin. Facebook should have implemented these policies long ago. Of course, some argue that they still don't actually implement them as numerous pages for well-known Holocaust denial groups remain active on the site even after this supposed ban took into effect. Then users who find these pages will be recommended to related pages. And as we mentioned earlier, will be stuck in these feedback loops. For example, one news source, the markup identified this chain of recommendations. From IRH's Institute for Historical Review page, users are recommended to visit a page for the Committee for Open Debate on the Holocaust, then a group called Castle Hill Publishers, which the Southern Poverty Law Center designates an active Holocaust denial group. And finally, a fan page for neo-Nazi Ernst Sundell, who authored the book, The Hitler We Loved and Why. Some of these groups mix factual information into their arguments, which along with communication through code words is a strategy to avoid content moderation, according to the Anti-Defamation League CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt. As a brief aside, I wanna make it clear that I don't condone any actions taken by these misinformation spreaders. Even if I think it's a shame that this loop really can trap people who may not take action needed to break themselves out of the cycle and do their own independent research, ultimately, I don't want anyone believing that I think people that fall for Holocaust denial pages are just victims of Facebook's recommended pages. If someone uses Facebook to support their discriminatory behavior, that one's on them. It's an incredibly dangerous dark hole to fall down. With names like the Institute for Historical Review and facts can get mixed in with falsehoods, I can see why or how someone may fall prey to this misinformation though, but still they went there all the same. Like I'm just saying, I don't really run into Holocaust denial groups when I'm looking around for something because I don't put myself down those rabbit holes to begin with. But 
you kind of have to start somewhere and then Facebook just kind of guides you down the ultimate road to hell. Naturally, this has also happened with plenty of other hate groups, such as white supremacist and QAnon groups as well. Neo-Confederate groups with tens of thousands of members remained uncensored on the platform in April, 2020. And as of December, 2020, the New York Times said this was still the case, despite the supposed ban. One of the super spreaders of the movement, Larry Cook, an anti-vaccination activist, was banned from Facebook in mid-November of the same year. And yet frustratingly enough, when this article was written in December, he still had an account on Instagram, which is of course, owned by Facebook. QAnon will still continue to crowdsource their idea of reality as Jared Holt, a research fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab puts it. He studies disinformation and extremism, and as many that have kicked off these social media platforms flock to fringe websites, Holt says that they're walking straight into an incubator for radicalization. QAnon and radical groups like it will always exist and to some extent always have, just in different forms. Religious and political extremism has been around for millennia. So while I won't go so far as to say that Facebook caused the Capitol Hill riots and siege, Facebook enabled these people that did take part in it. Facebook essentially told them that their free speech, their hateful racist speech was more important on a private platform than other people's safety. As Forbes explains, Forbes reviewed data from the program on extremism at the George Washington University, which has collated a list of more than 200 charging documents filed in relation to the siege. In total, the charging documents refer to 223 individuals in the Capitol Hill riot investigation. Of those documents, 73 reference Facebook. That's far more references than other social networks. YouTube was the second most referenced on 24. Instagram, a Facebook owned company was next on 20. Parler, the app that pledged protection for free speech rights and garnered a large far right user base was just mentioned in eight. The references are a mix of public posts and private messages sent on each platform discussing plans to go to stop the steel march, some containing threats of violence, as well as images, videos, and live streams from the breach of the Capitol building. And don't get me wrong, Facebook wasn't the only social media site involved and neither I nor this article want to imply that, but there shouldn't be any downplaying their role either. As Representative Frank Pallone, the New Jersey Democrat who chairs the House Energy and Commerce Committee said, they're not bystanders, they're making money. Even if people are responsible for their own actions and their own hatred and their own crimes, these social media sites are responsible for enabling the spread of misinformation and amplifying the toxic content. But is it entirely QAnon or political campaigns or Cambridge Analytica? Absolutely not. And unfortunately, we're going to have to talk more about this in part two about Facebook. Part two will be available this Friday at 9 a.m. MST. I can't say it's going to get much better because I only know it's actually going to be getting worse in part two. But all the same, thank you for spending some time here with me today on part one about Facebook. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Bye.